The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. I invite you now to open to the book of Colossians. And uh, as you do that to Colossians chapter 3, at verse 18 through 21, you will notice that uh, we are getting down into some very detailed portions of the book of Colossians. So grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Colossians. It's on page 984. If you need a copy of the Scriptures, get, grab one in the pew rack or whatever Bible you have, do turn with me to Colossians 3. Uh, as we have been working through the book of Colossians uh, regularly and somewhat slowly, what we've noticed is that since really about chapter 2, what Paul has been doing is he has been giving broad and general exhortations about the nature and character of the Christian life, helping you to understand uh, who you are in Christ and how you are to live out your life in Christ. Uh, but in chapter 3 now, he has gotten into some very particular details. Last week, we saw some uh, instructions for how we go about living together in the church, the corporate entity of the people of God in the church of Jesus Christ. But Paul is going to go down another layer now, a, 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 a more narrower scope, closer to home and into our personal lives. Now, sometimes there's a joke about preachers that there's a difference between you start doing application, right? This is what this means. And sometimes people say, you know, sometimes the preacher can preach and sometimes the preacher gets to meddling. Too detailed. Too specific. Uh, some might want to accuse Paul of doing some meddling in Colossians 3 here at the end uh, of this chapter. But I want to encourage us to realize that what Paul is doing here is he's not meddling, but rather he is taking some of the most basic realities that God has ordained for the flourishing of his people and he is laying them out in a way that so often chafes against a self-autonomous and independent culture that wants to say, my way is the best way. When God through the scriptures is saying, no, I, I made you. I created you. I ordained the context of your earthly relationships and I know best how they can flourish. It's so fascinating that texts that get so specific are oftentimes chafed against so much when in reality they are given to us most to help us. Uh, so, these words that we're going to read together may appear difficult, but they are intended to be received with grace and gladness. Now, one more word of context before we pray and read the text. Uh, remember that the book of Colossians was given by Paul to the church at Colossae, whom he had never met, coming by way of Tychicus to bring the letter to Philemon's house as the church gathers there, and they would have just read the letter. Now, one of the things that happens when we expositionally preach is we get to thinking that this is a really, really long book, but it wouldn't take you very long to sit down and read this in one setting, much less to read the entirety of Colossians out loud. And that's exactly how the church would have received it. And they would have been hearing about all this good news about the preeminence of Christ and what he's done to reconcile us to the Father and the ways in which he indwells us, that we have died to our sins in Christ and been raised with Christ and seated in heavenly places, as he says. And then he gets down to say, oh yeah, here's how you relate to each other as husband and wife and parents and children, which would give the people something of a shock to say, we're talking about that too? And Paul says, yes. We're talking about the whole of your life. All of your life. 
The key thing that I want us to see this morning, if you're going to take home the key point, is that Jesus, when he claims lordship over all things, there isn't a sphere or institution that is exempt from his lordship. There isn't a, a corner or aspect of your personal life that you get to exempt from the lordship of Jesus who claims authority over all things. He is Lord over all things. He is Lord, therefore, of the family that we're going to see that today. So let's pray. We'll ask God's blessing upon the word and we'll hear it together in faith. Heavenly Father, we come now to your word, thankful that you give it to us by the grace of your Holy Spirit, inspiring human authors to record without error that which you would speak to us, your people. And so as your spirit so moved Paul to record these words to the Colossian Christians, May it be true also of us, united by the same Spirit, to receive your word, to bless and strengthen and help us today. Lord, send your Spirit upon us to illuminate our minds that we might understand, and not only to understand, but to receive with faith and obey that which you speak to us here now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear the word of God, Colossians 3 at verse 18. We're going to read through verse 21, Colossians 3. At verse 18, this is the word of God. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. So we do keep our Bibles open here and remember the main point that Jesus is Lord over all things. And that means that He is Lord over the family. Now what Paul has been doing all throughout the book of Colossians is that he has been exalting this truth that the Christian believer is someone who is in union with Christ. I hope that's that really sticking with you throughout this Colossian series. The Christian believer is someone who is in union with Christ. He has told us throughout the letter, giving us a quick survey here, back in chapter 1, verse 14, that in Jesus Christ we have the forgiveness of sins. In Him, in union with Christ, we have these various benefits. Chapter 1, verse 14, in Him the forgiveness of our sins. Chapter 1, verse 19, in Him, in Jesus Christ, all the riches of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Also in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, as we have received Jesus Christ the Lord, so we are called to walk in Him, to live our lives in Him, in union, in communion, in relationship to Jesus Christ, rooted and built up in Him, so that the growth that we have in our life is a growth that comes as the branch is connected to the vine who gives it life and bears fruit in its life. Chapter 2, verse 10, we were told that we are filled in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 11, we are circumcised in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 12, we are buried with Him and raised together with Him. And on and on and on through all of Colossians is this repeated theme that your life as a Christian believer is a life that is in union, communion with Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. So don't forget that. When you're still reading the book of Colossians, and you're coming up against something and thinking to yourself, now what does that mean? When you know that the controlling emphasis of the entirety of this book is the lordship of Jesus Christ, it's not the case that Paul forgets that as he comes to the end of chapter 3 and throws union with Christ out. 
because he's still applying how the truth of your union with Christ transforms your life, transforms your relationships, both outwardly in the community and within the church and in the home is what this text is about. So what you see then in verse 18 and following is instructions for Christian households. And notice how Paul couches his language with what is true or fitting with or in Christ. So here are the emphasis. Wives, submit to your husband as it is fitting in the Lord. Or children are to obey literally because it is pleasing in the Lord or to the Lord. So this anchor that holds this text down is the reality that my life and the life of my family is a life in Christ, rooted in Christ and built up in Christ. And that means there is a pattern of living then that follows that union that results in the flourishing and happiness of the family so that we don't think that my life as a Christian has no bearing upon how I relate to my spouse or to my children. Of course it does. Of course your life in Christ has a bearing and a weight for how you relate to the people who mean the most to you, your own family. So, still some words of context here before we get into the details. We need to understand that marriages and families are institutions that have not escaped the implications of the fall, but rather it's where our fall into sin sometimes manifests itself most evidently with the people that we spend the most time with and are in closest proximity to. Our families can often be, unfortunately, places of chaos, unrest, darkness, hurt, even wickedness. God forbid, but it is true, abuse. And that is wrong. It is wrong and not God's way. What should we do about it? And how should we respond to it? Well, what we can't do, church, is we cannot have a sentimental view of these institutions. A sentimental view of family isn't going to solve the crises of our families, just having a sentimental view, because sentimental views of things produce unrealistic expectations. What we're talking about here in this text is Paul laying out some very particular understandings. It's good to be particular and clear because if you're not, then you live with unrealistic expectations. And unrealistic expectations are always unrealized expectations. And unrealized expectations lead to frustration and bitterness. All the while, the Bible is telling us how these institutions are supposed to work in the first place. The Bible is then, if you like, something of an operation manual for how to effectively run my life, including the spheres and institutions of my life, the church, the family. So, the question to be asking today is, what does it look like to bring my family under the Lordship of Christ? How does the Lordship of Jesus Christ influence and affect and have implications for my family. We who have died and risen in Christ know that true freedom and happiness is found in Him. 
True freedom and happiness is found in Jesus Christ as we walk in Him. So we're continuing to work against this notion that is common in the world today that, that I'm the one that gets to say I'm a totally independent, totally autonomous being and nobody gets to tell me nothing. You know, that mentality doesn't work when it comes to the Christian faith. This notion of self-autonomous, totally independent person, nobody gets to tell me nothing. If you have that as an attitude, nobody gets to tell me nothing, well, guess what? You're part of the people that's trying to tell people something, right? And you're trying to you know, exert a force of authority upon someone else. Nobody except me gets to tell me nothing except me, and I get to tell everybody everything. It doesn't work. It doesn't work in the Christian church. It doesn't work in the Christian household. So in contrast to this idea of nobody gets to tell me what to do, is Jesus saying, I am the exalted Lord, and I want to tell you how your family is designed, how it can best work. So Paul finds himself speaking to each member of the household. Now, one of the things that we should note is that the, Colossian, the book of Colossians is likely written very much in um, uh, parallel timing with the book of Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians has a more expanded commentary on these subjects that Paul really summarizes here in Colossians 3. But nevertheless, he totally agrees between the two letters. So Paul is now speaking to each member of the family as we celebrate Christ's lordship over us and as a result are called to live in a particular way. He gives a word to wives, a word to husbands, a word to children, a word to parents. Now, uh, just very conscientious then, uh, if Paul is addressing a particular circumstance that you don't personally find yourself in, that doesn't mean that there's no benefit here for you because this is instruction to the church. This is a benefit for all the families of God, no matter the circumstances that they find themselves in on how the church and its families should best operate. So first, a word to the ladies, a word to wives. Look again at verse 18. Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. And the form of this word here that people like to uh, talk much about, this Greek word for submit, it relates to a voluntary submission, a voluntary willing submission. So can we just be very clear about the fact that hard-handed, abusive relationships is the furthest picture from what Paul is talking about here. The submission that Paul speaks about here is a glad, willing, voluntary submission. The word also means to order one's self or to order under. Actually, if you look back at chapter 2, verse 5, chapter 2, verse 5, when Paul says, rejoicing to see your good order, the words that's translated good order is the same word there in 3.18 for submit, but it means to order one's self under authority. To order oneself under authority. And again, this is not saying all women must submit to all men. It's saying wives submit to your husband. So again, away with this uh, machismo patriarchal notion of all women are under all men. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says, wives, submit to your own husbands. Now, why does it say that? Why does it say that? That's because in the New Testament, submission is a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing because 
every Christian is to be submitted toward God. Every Christian is also instructed to be in submission to one another. Church members are called to be in submission to their elders. The whole church is called to be in submission to Christ. Christian citizens are called to be in submission to the civil government so far as they don't lead them to sin. And even Christ himself is said to submit to his Father in obedience for us and for our salvation. So if you associate negative things with the word submit, it's because you're not clear on the Bible's teaching that this is a beautiful thing. In fact, a glorious picture that all Christian believers are called to willingly and voluntarily with delight submit themselves to Christ, and then that submission works itself out in other pictures too. Notice, he says, as it is fitting in the Lord. People oftentimes want to dismiss texts like this because they say, well, that's just that context and that's just that culture. But Paul never says because it's fitting in the first century. Paul says because it is fitting in the Lord. What Paul is speaking of here is not a cultural reality, but also, again, to be clear, Paul is not talking about some kind of passivity or doormat of unrecognized personhood to denigrate the wife, but rather to lift her up, to fulfill her, to give her a picture of her relationship to Jesus as it relates to Christ and the church. Actually, if you want to look back at that in Ephesians chapter 5, you have the bigger picture of this, of why it is the New Testament instructs that wives are to fulfill this particular role because they are acting out the drama of the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. And women, wives, play the role of the church where they receive from Jesus Christ the blessings of joy and satisfaction. Now, quite frankly, uh, wives, you get the better end of all of this if you understand the metaphor from Ephesians 5. But Paul says, don't do it for anything other than because it is fitting in the Lord. You are living out the church's role. There's more that we could say about this. But again, to be very clear, the word submit does not imply servitude or inferiority in any way. But a posture of humility and reverence that is characteristic of how God calls all of his children to relate to him by way of submission toward authority when he says it is fitting in the Lord. Live out this basic picture of the Christian life in relationship to your husband. I imagine people have more than a few questions about that. But you might be interested to know, actually, that that's not the controversial part of this text. And it certainly wouldn't have been the controversial portion of that text as Paul writes it in the first century. When he says, wives, submit to your husbands, he's really not saying anything particularly controversial at all. The controversial thing is what he says to husbands. Secondly, a word to husbands. You see, husbands and wives were brought together oftentimes in the first century, not on the basis of loving affection, but uh, prudential contractual concerns of land inheritance and uh, family you know, progeny, moving the name forward, and that's about it. The main function of marriage in the ancient world was not to love, but to carry forward the family name. And if they happen to fall in love, husband and wife, well, good for you, but that wasn't what marriage was for in the first place. No, there was no expectation of marriage in the ancient world being a place of safe, haven-loving affection. But look at what Paul says to husbands. Husbands, if you are in Christ, the Word of God is not suggesting to you, but is rather commanding you to love your wives. Verse 19, 
Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. He says that there is no place, zero place in Christian marriage for a husband that is harsh, a husband that is mean-spirited, a husband that is physically aggressive towards his wife. Husbands, love your wives. Again, Paul says more about this in Ephesians 5. He says, husbands, in the drama between Christ and the church, you are demonstrating the role of the Savior who dies for his bride, who doesn't exalt himself over his bride, but lays down his life daily for his bride. Husbands, love your wives. The Bible calls husbands to be heads of homes, leaders in the homes. This is what the Bible teaches. You are to lead the way Jesus leads, sacrificially, giving yourself up in love for your spouse, pouring yourself out for her, putting your concerns under your wife's concerns. We say it very straightforward in this way. Husbands, your home is not fundamentally the arena of your leisure. It is the arena of your service. Your home is to be the primary arena where you give of yourself for first your wife, but also your children. Husbands, love your wives. Oh, it's oftentimes people say, well, I don't don't love my wife anymore. This isn't talking about a feeling. It's talking about a command. It's talking about do this. Because you know what? If you're crossways with your wife, the Bible says, love your neighbor, and she's your closest neighbor. Because she lives with you. And you say, well, we don't live together anymore. Well, the Bible says, love your enemy. So love your enemy, too. But love your wife. Love your wife. There is no excuse for the Christian husband not to love their wife. When Jesus is Lord of your life, when he has your heart, he calls you husbands to give it to your wife. This was a radical idea when it was received in the first century. Loving affection. She's oftentimes seen not in that way, and Paul says Jesus should transform the way you look at your wife, husband. Love your wives. Not just say the words, but live the reality. We need to be redeemed, husbands, from being, Paul says, harsh with them. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Or another way of translating that is do not become bitter towards them. Husbands, your wife is not a projection of your idealized desires. She's a real human being just like you. If your wife disappoints your selfish hope and self-centered ambitions when she doesn't measure up to your unrealistic expectations, men oftentimes justify a callous and unloving attitude by saying, well, you don't do this for me, so I won't do it for you, when in reality that that's not the picture. It's actually the exact opposite of the picture of service that the Bible paints of the relationship between husbands and wives. A harsh husband demands from his wife and burdens his wife and says, what have you done for me, when a Christian's first question should be, what can I do for you? It's a real JFK thing, isn't it? Ask not what your wife can do for you, but what you can do for your wife. Is the primary motivating factor. Paul calls men to relate to their wives, not first to put them under your authority, 
but to place them within the safety of your affection. Basic Christian principles that are true of our relationships to Jesus manifest themselves in our homes as we realize that the assertion of independence isn't actually freedom, but a a loving dependence that trusts one another, that trusts Jesus, that then manifests trust in our home. Now, yes, to be sure, verse 18 and verse 19 should be read together because they're intended to relate one to another. The fulfillment of each is dependent upon the other, but it's not necessitated upon the other. But we should say that the husband who obeys Christ in this regard shows his wife why it's a safe thing for her to submit herself to a loving husband. It remains for each couple to work out the details in their own particular situations, but the basic, basic operating principles are there to be sure. Now, I don't know anyone, any couple, that says, you know what? We got this down perfect. So everyone just take a deep old breath, right, and relieve yourself for a moment that we're all in the same boat. We'll say more about this in just a moment. But the whole point of the instruction is that Jesus is Lord, and that means he calls us forward in ways in which we need to strive. A word to wives, a word to husbands, a word to children. Look at what he says about uh, children, and yes, children and fathers, but children and parents by extension, verses 20 and 21. He says, the thing which is pleasing in the Lord is for children to obey their parents. Now, nobody qualms about that verse, do they? Now, of course, it's an extension of the fifth commandment, honor our father and mother. But this is also a controversial reality because in the first century, children would not have received direct instruction if Paul a notable religious figure, wanted to provide instruction to children. Culturally, he should have gone by way of the parents to then provide instruction, but he speaks to the children. Oftentimes, children were seen just as property until they're of mature enough age to be adults, but he sees them as persons and speaks directly to them. Responsible moral agents. Paul does that here, directly to the children. He says, children, obey your parents. Now, children... I hope you're hearing me, and I oftentimes know that you probably feel like you're not being spoken to in sermons, but Paul is speaking to you, children, here in the church, and he's calling you to obey your parents because it's pleasing in the Lord. When you obey your mom and your dad, God smiles upon you, to think of it that way. God is pleased with you when you obey your parents because it pleases God, because your parents love you, And they have been given to you for your benefit and protection. And one of the ways you grow deeper in your knowledge of God is learning to relate to your parents as God calls you to. Children, you don't run your home. Your parents do. This speaks to something of an idolatry of family that's very present in our culture oftentimes, isn't it? when parents literally bow down to the whims and desires of their children in fear of upsetting them for any reason. And Paul has a word against that. Children, obey your parents because it's pleasing in the Lord. And a word that also to parents. Paul then has this word for parents. I think it's useful, helpful that he speaks particularly to fathers. But yes, it's of course by extension to parents. But at least as a father, fathers need to be addressed in this regard. Actually, those of you who might think, I've got a teenager at home, so I need to hear something of this. I feel the weight of this with the toddler. Paul says, fathers, 
Do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. What he's saying here is, don't be a doormat to their desires, bowing down to them, yes, for sure. Uh, I feel something of this every time my son objects to brushing his teeth. Right? Don't be harsh to them. That doesn't mean, you know what, forget it, we won't do that. No, it means we know what's best for you, we know what you need, we need to care for you in this way. That's not exactly the specific context that's imagined here. But more generally, what Paul is talking about here is fathers relating to your children, and yes, parents relating to your children, in such a way that your primary motivation is the, the stewardship and shepherding of their young hearts that fundamentally is wanting to encourage them and build them up. Listen, don't just grind on your kids all day, right? Don't just, don't just aggravate them. Don't just bark at them all day long. Don't just constantly say, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do that. That's what Paul is talking about, this notion of provoking them. Be careful that your default tone with your children isn't criticism and complaint of everything that they do wrong. Uh, parents, let your children see that you take delight in them. Let your children see that you love them, that you are proud of them, that you celebrate them, that you rejoice over them. Don't crush their spirits, is what Paul is saying. And the reason why he says it in this way is because the Lord Jesus never does that to you. The Lord Jesus is never out to crush your spirit. The Lord Jesus is a tender shepherd who wants to win your heart and lead you in a path that is best for you. The Lord Jesus wants to tenderly shepherd your heart, so that's how we are called to relate to our children, so that our children would learn to know more of Jesus, not just by our words, but by our actions. And yes, to be sure, one of the most important things that your children need to see from you is the ways in which you acknowledge that you're not perfect as a parent. It's actually one of the best things that your children need from you, for you to confess and ask for their forgiveness because mom needs a savior, dad needs a savior, I'm not a perfect parent. This whole family needs the grace of Jesus Christ. A word to wives and husbands, a word to children, a word to parents. Now, listen, what's the point of all of this? Again, to work against this notion that Paul is just getting to meddling here, what he is doing here is he is presenting a view of life and of the home that is transformed by the grace of Jesus. Jesus Christ transforms the structures of power and authority in the world and takes them from abusive and harsh and people out to get their own and takes that mentality and says, let me shape this into the form of a cross where service and love and sacrifice and tenderness and uh, laying down my life becomes normal and orderly. And the reason why God is doing this through Christian homes is because in the ordinary life, it creates a living witness where people then look at us and say, where in the world does that come from? Why do you live the way that you do? Why does your family do the things that you do and talk to each other the way that you do? Why are you kind to each other the way that you are? So that they would see a life transformed by the power of the gospel because through the church and through the Christian households in the church, the Lord Jesus is building His kingdom and building His new society of the people of God, transforming a new humanity so that all the world would see that grace transforms everything, even the most personal of relationships. 
where husbands lovingly served their wives and wives joyfully received the leadership of their husbands' love and children willingly obey their parents and parents deal with their children patiently, wisely, carefully, tenderly to nurture their hearts towards Jesus because everything is about that reality. So that's why, but now, and finally we should say, what should we do? You know, rubber on the road, brass tacks type of application thing here. And let's say very clearly, when you hear a text like this, usually what it makes you do is shrink down and cower a bit because we're ashamed that the things that Paul speaks so directly about are things that we struggle with so much because we fail or we struggle. And you know what, loved one? Just like the rest of your Christian life, you will fail and struggle. You will stumble along the path of obedience, but that doesn't mean the path of obedience is the wrong path for you. It's the right path. You just need grace to walk it. So what should we do? What should we do when we feel discouraged? And what should we do when we feel guilty? And what should we do when we feel like this is too much for me and I'm too embarrassed to even start or I don't even know where to go? What should we do? Well, loved one, you should follow the same pattern of the gospel that you do in the rest of your Christian life. You should repent, first of all. You should repent. You should turn away from what you have been doing. Husbands, you should repent of your lack of love. Repent of how you have been harsh Repent of the ways in which you've been lazy rather than a leader. Husbands, repent. Wives, repent of the ways that you have rejected your husband's leadership. It's foolheartedly and he mumbles along, but if he's trying, delight yourself in it. Children, repent of your disobedience and the ways in which you scorn your parents' love for you and how they're trying to lead you along a good path. Parents, repent of your impatience. Lord knows I was doing that this morning. Repent. Repentance is good for your soul. When we repent, we say, Lord, I've been wrong about this and I'm going to turn. I've been walking down a pathway that I've insisted is going to go my own way, but Lord, I want to walk in your way. Repent. But then secondly, don't just repent. Secondly, trust. Believe by faith that God's word and way is best for you. It will result in your greatest happiness. It will result in your deepest flourishing. It will result in blessing for your family. Trust. And then, try again. Isn't that the beautiful thing about the Christian faith? We repent, we trust, and try again. We repent and trust and try again. We get back up and we keep walking and we start again. Loved ones, Start again in Jesus Christ because you are in union with Him and He's transforming your life. When we try to run our lives apart from God's design, it's no wonder that we get frustrated. So it's a call to every single one of us to confess the ways in which we have wanted to pursue our own ways and say, Lord, help me to trust in You. Help me to come to You because You offer me real rest and flourishing and blessing. Loved ones, that's not meddling. It's life-giving. Let us, by the Spirit, rest in God's Word and seek by faith to live it out. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You that You, you deal so often even with such ordinary but practical matters such as these. Father, we want the name of Jesus to be exalted in our homes and we confess the ways in which
It has not been every single one of us, Lord. Give us grace so that Christ will be exalted in our lives, in our homes, in our relationships, so that your name would be lifted up and great among our community, among our world, we pray. In your matchless name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.